Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Xander's Facts. Hello, everybody. Welcome in to the latest edition of the Xander's Facts podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. Thank you all so much for tuning in this week. It is episode 85 of the podcast here on Wednesday, December 7th, 2022. It is a big podcast because it's always a big podcast every week. But this week is, of course, a big podcast. Maybe not in stature, but in heart, in meaning. Because we're going to be talking about something very bittersweet this week. And that is that the United States men's national team is out. They have lost... And they are out of the World Cup. So sad. We are going to talk about it on the podcast. I'm very heartbroken. Even though this happened several days ago, it is still really affecting me. But we're going to talk about it because once again, for like the hundredth week in a row of this podcast, maybe like four, we are going to talk about the World Cup because it is still going on. It's the biggest thing still going on. It's the only thing that I'm paying attention to. Of course, there's another thing that I'm paying attention to in politics which is the Georgia Senate runoff, which is happening Tuesday night. I'm literally looking to my left right now because I'm recording this Tuesday night and CNN's on. John King's yabbing about something. So we're going to talk about that at the end of the podcast and what that all means. But we're going to start with the World Cup soccer, the United States men's national team, our favorite men's national team. Well, we'll talk about it just a second. But before we do, I just thought I would remind you all, as I do every week, that if you like the Zaders Facts podcast, if you think you're going to like the facts on this week's edition of the podcast, whether you've listened to the podcast before or not, for those of you who haven't, welcome into Zaders Facts. But it doesn't matter. Follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 85, rate and review the podcast, and then go on all your social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. Zaders Facts is still on Twitter and everywhere else. That's Zader with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends about the facts. We like to call it Spread the Facts! Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast. Episode 85, Xander's World Cup coverage because it is second to none. This is absolutely incredible. Xander's Weekend Facts, which we're actually going to talk about in just a little bit. Xander's Facts Linktree, which has all the Xander's Facts links that you need, including for the Xander's Facts website, xandersfacts.com, and the Xander's Facts shop, which has all the latest styles. Get your Zaders Facts merch because you don't know what to get your aunt for your Christian holiday or winter holiday or whatever. Zandersfacts.com has you covered. Go check it out. Go check out all the Zaders Facts stuff because you can find it all on Zandersfacts.com. So let's get into the stuff we we're going to talk about this week. The World Cup again. I'm going to give you a little update on the World Cup because it's still going on. Finally. You'll probably be listening to this podcast and it won't be out of date because Wednesday is the first day since like a month that we have not had World Cup soccer. It's really sad, but also it gives me time to just take a breather and chillax and just look back on all the soccer that's been played so far. So we're going to give a little update on that. But before we do, I wanted to talk about a certain team, one of the 32 teams that has meant most dearest to our hearts during this World Cup. And that is the United States men's national team, because they are the greatest team in the history of the world. However, they did not play like it, at least on Saturday of last week. Man, that was rough. When they lost 3-1 
to the Netherlands in the round of 16. If you have not read Xander's Weekend Facts this week, I would very much encourage that you do, because this week, on Sunday, I wrote a Xander's Facts ode to the United States men's national team, and I thought I did a pretty good job. You might disagree, but I would disagree with you. And so if you haven't read that, check it out, because everybody's talking about it, I mean, seriously. But the fact is that our United States men's national team is no longer in the tournament. 3-1, they lost the Netherlands in the round of 16 on Saturday. And to be frank, it wasn't their best game of this tournament. It's actually probably their worst. So let's talk about it, because starting the game on Saturday, it was 10 a.m. It was the earliest kickoff for the United States men's national team in this World Cup, which was kind of ugh. But I was up for it. 10 a.m., and game starts, and the U.S. is looking good. Christian Pulisic has a great chance, an absolutely tremendous chance. The only person he has to beat is the goalie, and he didn't beat him, because first off, he got the ball so suddenly he thought he was offside. He wasn't, and that probably psyched him up. And also, this was the game Pulisic was coming back from. After the Iran game, you know, he got hit in the weenie. Pelvic contusion said he didn't get hit in the weenie, even though we saw it, and yeah, he got hit in the weenie. But four days later, he was up and ready to play, and he looked pretty good. Just that chance in the second or third minutes, by the way. It was really, beginning of the game, really would have set the momentum, set the tone for that game, and it didn't go in. And then, after that, it kind of fell apart for the United States men's national team. In the 10th minute was a goal by... Memphis Depay from the assist by Denzel Dumfries. And let me just tell you all how that wins, because in the 10th minute, Dumfries is streaking down the side, crosses the ball in. There's a couple guys in there, a couple defenders, and the one guy they didn't have marked, the defense did, was Memphis Depay. And he was easily able to put that away. And so after that, it's 1-0. U.S. are down for the first time in the tournament, by the way. And also, the first goal in the tournament they gave up during the run of play, they had only given up one goal in the group stage, and that was on a penalty, Gareth Bale with Wales. The U.S. coming into this was the only team in the World Cup that had not allowed a goal in the run of play. It's a fact. And then, first game of the round of 16 for any team. Ten minutes in, it happens, but there you go. So, the U.S. then are starting to gain a little more momentum back. They're looking pretty good. And then the Netherlands go on a counter. Again. There's one added minute in the first half, and Denzel Dumfries is running down the side, this time the near side, and he crosses it to Daily Blind. A lot of questions, actually, at Daily Blind that he was even starting, even playing in the World Cup, but he scored the goal because, once again, the defense left a man unmarked, and it was 2-0 into halftime. 1-0 at halftime. You're probably like, all right, we got this. We can come back. Let's go. 2-0, uh, then you kind of lose a little momentum, especially when it happens right before the half. It just not, it just was not working. The U.S. had a bunch of chances, though, in the second half, including one that went. That was in the 76th minute from Haji Wright, who came in as striker for Weston McKinney, actually. And it was on a pass from Christian Pulisic. It was a nice pass from Christian Pulisic, but Haji Wright kind of flicks it with his back foot, and it goes flying... And the defense is like, where in the world did the ball go? And somehow it goes into the back end of that. Everybody's like, he did not mean to do that. But let me tell you all, Haji Wright, of course he meant to do that. If you say so. And so it was 2-1, because a few minutes before that, 
Haji Wright had a clear path to the goal and just took a heavy touch in the box, and he missed it. So that was the redeemer, because I was really hating on Haji Wright at that moment, and then he redeems himself. It's 2-1. Then you're like, oh my gosh, we have hope. We have a chance, ladies and gentlemen. We can come back. We're the United States of America. We can do it. Five minutes later, Denzel Dumfries, this time on the receiving end of an assist from Daily Blind. And, uh, yeah, 3-1. Just another case of a man not marked. Which was the theme. Not just the defense, but the entire team for the United States looked tired. And that may have been because nine of the players in the starting lineup started in all four of the games. The only two who didn't were Walker Zimmerman, who at center back next to Tim Ream, the 35-year-old who did start all four of the games and I don't believe was subbed out in any of the four games. And then Jesus Ferreira, who was starting at striker, came out at halftime for Giovanni Reina. Thank goodness. He played really well. Just, that was, like, the first action we had seen him from him since seven minutes against England. So we didn't really get to, you know, say anything based on his performance. And they were down 2-0 at half. They needed to score goals, and that's why he finally was brought in. And Ferreira had not started a game in this tournament because Haji Wright had started against England, and then Josh Sargent, who I think Greg Berhalter probably wanted to start in this game, started against Wales and Iran, but he got injured against Iran, just like Pulisic did. He had to come out, and he couldn't play, unlike Pulisic. So, he was not available for this match. So, Jesus Ferreira, the third striker on the squad, who I think a lot of us thought was probably going to start at the beginning of the tournament, finally gets a start. He, uh, mm, did not do so well, so he was subbed out at halftime. But the other nine guys, up top, Pulisic and Tim Weah started. In the middle, Musa, McKinney, Adams, MMA, they all started. And then on the left, Anthony Robinson. On the right, Serginho Dest in the back. And then Tim Ream and Matt Turner in goal. So nine players started all four games. It's the truth. Which I'm not criticizing Greg Berhalter for because that's your best team and Basically, all of those games you really needed to try. You didn't really have a game like a Brazil or a Portugal or a France did where they could just throw the third game because it didn't matter because they already had six points, so they were already going to advance anyway. Like, you needed to win the Iran game. You needed to get a point against England, and you did. You needed to get a point against Wales, and they did. So they needed something from all those games. So you really do have to start, you know, your best player. So I'm not faulting him for that. It's just the issue is that in this World Cup, this World Cup is, first off, atypical because it's in the fall, but also there's been less time between games for these teams. So you've had less rest between the games for the players, and that's what happened for the United States. Now, Netherlands also had something to play for in all three of their games, and they did not look this tired, so maybe it was something else, or maybe they are really good at conditioning. But either way... That's what happened. 3-1 was the final for Netherlands. They advance to the quarterfinal. They will face Argentina. We'll talk about that in a World Cup update in a bit. But just looking at this one stat for both teams, I guess, but for the U.S., expected goals, which is an advanced stat. Netherlands had 1.67 expected goals, which is more than the U.S. The U.S., though, had 1.49. The U.S. 
in this game had 58% possession. They had the majority of the possession, and especially at the end of the first half, except for that last minute, and in the second half, they had the ball a lot. And the Netherlands were okay with that because the Netherlands saw in their first three games, hey, you all scored a total of two goals. I think if we clamp down on defense, especially with Virgil van Dijk at the back and all of our players are basically taller than you and our goalkeeper 6'8", we could probably do a good job. If all you're going to do is whip crosses into the box and our taller players are just going to head them away because that's basically what happened. The set pieces, the quarter kicks, we have been saying... Please do something different with the quarter kicks. Why is Pulisic taking them? Pulisic takes them again. Same result. They don't do anything different. They do a regular quarter kick. And because the Netherlands defense is taller than our attackers every time, it's like head, 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 head away, head away. Every single time. And they didn't change. They didn't adapt. I just don't understand. They ha- So that's why their expected goals are so big because they had a ton of the possession. And the Netherlands, all three other goals were on counterattacks. And actually, Netherlands had more chances than just three. It wasn't, wasn't those three. If it wasn't for Matt Turner, it would have been more goals. Matt Turner was amazing at this tournament. He was a great in the England game. He was great in the Wales game. And he probably did the best that a keeper could do in the Wales game. I've already said this on the podcast. But that penalty against Gareth Bale, he got a hand on it. That was an absolute smacker from Gareth Bale. No keeper in the world is saving that one. And he got a hand on it and actually tipped it. That's like the best you can do as a keeper. And he knew it too. And then the Iran game, he did really well, especially in the second half when we just parked the bus and let them have it at our defense. And there was that one that kind of slipped through his hands and that was cleared off the line. But other than that, he's done really well. And he's Arsenal's backup right now. He's been playing in the Europa League, I think. But really, Aaron Ramsdale is your starter? Matt Turner should be a starter. Mikel Arteta, come on. Terrible. But anyways, yes, the defense was tired. They did not look as clinical as they did in the first three games. And even the midfield, even Tyler Adams, we've been praising Tyler Adams as not just a great player on the field, but off the field. We should play... I'm not going to play it again, but you should go listen to his press conference with the Iranian journalist because I absolutely love that clip. But point stands, he's been a great player as well in the first three games. There's a reason why he's the captain. But even he was kind of a step off. He seemed tired. So did the midfield. So did the forwards. All 11 guys basically seemed tired. Maybe not Matt Turner, but like the whole team just felt a step off the pace from the last three games, and they felt tired. And Louis van Gaal, who is the manager for Netherlands, knew that. He also knew what they did attacking, and he was like, all right, we'll just sit back and counter. And it worked to perfection. The Netherlands had a great game plan coming into this game, and it worked to perfection. They're number eight in the world, and a lot of people were saying, well, they didn't look too good at the group. But they look really good now. Maybe they were just saving it. I don't know. But they looked really good against the United States. And, well, I'll make a prediction about the Argentina game later. But I think they'll do okay against Argentina, too. So, Netherlands are not a team to basically be like, we lost to that team? Seriously? No. We lost to a really good team. Hats off to Netherlands. Or Holland, as you hear people call it. I, have, I had no idea why they called it Holland. And then I looked it up. It used to be referred to, I guess, or called Holland, 
like up until the 90s. And now they don't want you to call it that anymore because there's only like two little provinces in it that are actually Holland. But everyone referred to it as Holland, but they want to be called the Netherlands or the Dutch. They don't want to be called Holland. But there's a lot of people who keep calling them Holland, so I don't know why. But I've been called the Netherlands. But I was very confused on that. <laughs> but anyway, with the Netherlands, get back to the U.S. The U.S. who I basically wrote on Zader's Weekend Facts on Sunday. If you haven't read it, you should. That this is not a result to feel distraught or depressed about if you're a fan of the United States men's national team. This tournament is something you should be proud of and excited. I wrote the first line in Sanders Weekend Facts. Proud of our baby eagles, I called it, because they are baby eagles, because they're so young, even if I got that from Men and Blazers. But I wrote my first line, the matches may be over, but the momentum is not. What a way to start an article. How about that? No one cares. But it's true. The momentum is not. I also wrote in this piece, quote, even though those who were in Qatar attempted to deflect the notion, they said they thought they could win it all this year. It's not about this year. It's about 2026. It's always been about 2026. Because I listed out a lot of names and a lot of ages in this article. Christian Pulisic, the man we all claim the savior of soccer in this country. He is 24 years old. The captain of our national team, Tyler Adams, is 23. Serginho Dest, who, by the way, is from the Netherlands. He was born in the Netherlands. He grew up in the Netherlands. He can only play with the U.S. because his parents have citizenship. He's 22. That was kind of a big game for him, and he didn't play that well. Yunus Musa, part of that MMA in the midfield. Yunus Musa, who's on the radar of a lot of big-name clubs. I'll get to that in a second. He's 20. Tim Weah, who scored the goal against Wales, 22. Tim Ream, 35. Maybe maybe that doesn't count. Tim Ream will be 38 by the 2026 World Cup, but yeah. Take a look at those ages, and that's not all of them, by the way. You'd be like, wow, he's that young? Gio Reyna's 20, and we've been clamoring for him to get off the bench because we think he's one of our best players. Anthony Robinson, who played really well, is 25. Weston McKitty, Brendan Aronson, all those guys around that same age. Yeah, they are. It's a really young team. And the guys who are older, Walker Zimmerman is late 20s. Matt Turner's late 20s, too, because he actually didn't start playing or get serious about soccer until high school. He went to Fairfield for college. He played college soccer, was drafted in the Super Draft at MLS by New England. So he's actually been a late bloomer as our first to soccer, but he's still relatively young. Like the guys who are old on this team weren't there in 2018 when the collapse happened. It was basically a collapse. It was the Biggest disaster in the history of soccer in this country. When on a cow pasture, basically, in Trinidad and Tobago, the United States failed to qualify for the World Cup. Ugh. Christian Pulisic was there. Now, in 2014, the only person on this team with World Cup experience, which you have to go back to 2014 for in Brazil, is DeAndre Yedlin, who basically didn't play much. He played a little bit, came off the bench, but he didn't play much in this. So. We're not just talking about a team that's young in terms of the players on the field. We're talking about a culture that is young. After 2018, the culture of this T 
team organization, the United States men's national team, was torn down and it had to be rebuilt. It had to be built back up. And guys like Christian Pulisic are the ones who have built this culture. And you know the saying, Rome wasn't built in a day. Well, culture wasn't built in a day either, but it's happening. And you could just see, you can tell from the reports that are coming out from the U.S. camp that the players actually like each other. Like Greg Berhalter actually said that his favorite day of camp is the first day when everyone gets to see everyone for the first time in a while. And I said in my article, he said he loves seeing the reactions when they greet one another because they're actually friends, these players. You know, that's a little different from teams like Belgium, who basically hate each other and were fighting this whole tournament and had to take separate planes back to Belgium when they got knocked out of the group stage because they hate each other. That's impressive. That's a lot different. This team is building a culture. When you can build a culture and when you can play together and when you feel trusted and you can trust the guys around you, the other 10 guys on the pitch with you, that means a lot in the game of soccer, especially at the international game where you're not with these guys very often, not nearly as much as with your club. Like I wrote in my article, Christian Pulisic basically admitted, and you could have told by watching him play with the national team a couple years ago, that he basically thought that he needed to carry this team on his back and do everything that he could. Now he says he doesn't feel that way because he trusts the guys that are around him to make plays to help him out too. That level of trust when you're on a soccer pitch, if you're not Ronaldo or Messi, is very valuable. I'm sorry, I messed up their names. The Portuguese Pulisic and the Argentinian Aronson, by the way. Fact nugget. So when you're talking about 2022 and was this a success or a failure for the US, should you hang your head? No, you shouldn't hang your head because first off, they're young in stature. But they're also young at team building. They're building a team. They're building a culture right now. And it's looking really good right now. But there's that youth. There's that inexperience. One guy with World Cup experience. Christian Pulisic, basically the only guy right now he's playing, who was on the field. Cow pasture in Trinidad in 2017 when we didn't make the World Cup. So you have to build that from the ground up. And it takes time. And it's not just going to take four years. It's going to take longer than that. Maybe not even eight years, but that's what we're all looking to, right? Because 2026 is when the World Cup is going to be in Canada and Mexico and the United States, you know? America! And really, to go far in a World Cup, you need that experience, you need that culture, and you kind of need some luck. First off, you also need to know how to play the game, but you also need some luck. And taking a look at teams that have hosted the tournament and won the tournament, it's not that small of a list considering six times it has happened that a team or a nation has hosted the World Cup and won the World Cup. 1930 in Uruguay, 1934 Italy, 1974 in, at the time, West Germany, 1978 in Argentina, France in 1998, England, who we all hail as the greats. I mean, they're pretty good, but the country who invented the game, they've only won the World Cup once. It was in 1966 when they hosted it. And then another two times, 
Brazil in 1950 and Sweden in 1958, the hosts made the final. Even four years ago, Russia, who was not that good at soccer, or anything for that matter, got it out of their group four years ago. They made the quarterfinal, where they lost on penalties to Croatia, who went to the final. These are facts. Now, we can take 2022 out of the equation, because Qatar, woof. But usually, the host nation does pretty well. Out of its projected 80 games right now, we still don't know how the 2026 World Cup is going to go. It's going to be 48 teams, an expansion of 32 from where it is right now. But we don't know if it's going to be three team groups or four team groups. Three team groups would be absolutely just terrible. Four team groups would be okay. But then you have like a round of 32. That just... Like, why didn't... They went to 48 because of money, but 32 just makes so much more sense. It's like, really, FIFA? But if it's 80 or so, then 60 of them, I believe, would be in the U.S., 10 in Canada, 10 in Mexico. So the majority of the games are going to be played on home soil in the United States. They're going to play the U.S. games in the U.S. And clearly, that means something. So a lot of the players were very confident about 2022. This is a very confident team. It's not that they were lacking confidence against Netherlands, they were just tired. But a lot of the guys were coming out saying, no, we're not thinking about 2026, we're thinking about now. And, you know, you would probably say that if you were actually playing, because, you know, there's no guarantee you're going to be on the roster in 2026. And they were saying, we think we can win this World Cup in 2022. Obviously, that didn't happen. But they were very confident about that. But now that's behind us, and now the goal is 2026. What can you do? in 2026 to continue the ascension of soccer and the United States men's national team in this country, because that is what we're aiming at right now, is the 2026 World Cup. What can we do between now and then? And there's a lot of things we could do. We can have more experience. I think we're going to have some more experience in 2026 with these guys who played in the World Cup, coming back, a lot of them. There's going to be some new faces, obviously. Some new young guys who come in because the academies, the MLS academies of this country, just keep pumping out really good players. And you also need to come together as a team, culture. That looks like it's going well. You need to play better. We'll see what happens. But a lot of these players have not hit their primes yet. So you would hope that they do get better. And I've actually got a whole list here because there was a lot of graphics on social media about the players' ages in 2026. Well, I've got one of them here from Fox Soccer that I put on my Xander's Weekend Facts from this past weekend. A lot of these ages, Christian Pulisic in 2026, the summer of 2026 is going to be 27. So is Tyler Adams. So is Weston McKinney. Gio Reyna is going to be 23. Brendan Aronson is going to be 25. Anthony Robinson, Cameron Carter-Vickers are going to be 28. Eunice Moose is going to be 23. Serginho Dest is going to be 25. Tim Way is going to be 26. All these players had a massive impact on this team in 2022. And at these ages, they're going to be in their primes. And they're going to be better than they were this year. That's a lot of numbers. So that's scary. If you're another team playing in the U.S. And a lot of what this tournament was really about for the U.S. was gaining experience and getting more fans to watch soccer. I think the England game helped a lot, even though it was nil-nil. But the s- football fans complaining about ties in soccer. I'm sorry, did you watch the Washington Giants game on Sunday? How did it end? A tie. Okay, give me a freaking break. Ties happen in football too. Stinger. So there's those two components. And also, 
getting respect around the world. And there's a lot of people who know what they're talking about in other countries, journalists, coaches, a lot of people around the world who are impressed by this U.S. men's national team. Because the round of 16 coming out in there, losing 3-1 to Netherlands may seem like a disappointment without context. But in context with this team, with the youth that we have, you know, it's pretty good. You got out of the group. Germany didn't get out of the group. Belgium didn't get out of the group. Mexico, for the first time in eight World Cups, did not get out of the group. So it's really hard to get out of the group, by the way, because you cut 32 to 16, and they made it. And they did not look like the worst team in the round of 16, which we'll get to in our World Cup update. But there's a lot of people around the world, fans, journalists, pundits, coaches, whatever, players, who are looking at the U.S. and they're like, hmm, this could be something, maybe even in four years. This could be someone to watch out for because it's about all the things that I just described. Having experience, having a culture, having players who play well, having players who play at a consistently high level, not just internationally, but for their club. And when we get to that, you talk about transfers, the transfer window. And there's a lot of rumors going around right now on guys like Yunus Musa. Apparently, there's some big-name clubs, a.k.a. Arsenal, Chelsea, in England, who are looking at Yunus Musa right now, who plays in Spain at Valencia. Weston McKinney's at Juventus, which is already a big club. But there's a lot of, been a lot of rumors recently about Tottenham. He could go to England. Tyler Adams is with Jesse Marsh, who's known him since Tyler Adams was 17, or maybe younger, I believe, with New York Red Bulls. And he just got there. But after this World Cup, his stock has gone way up. Chelsea might want to cash out on Pulisic. He could go. There's been rumors. Manchester United, Newcastle United. There's all these rumors going on right now. And we'll see what happens in January when the transfer window opens and in the summer if they actually materialize. But there's a lot of high stock prices right now on a lot of players for the U.S. men's national team. And you want that because you want these players to be consistently playing the best. Pulisic plays at Chelsea in the Champions League. He's playing the best, but he's not consistently playing. So you also want, you know, consistent play. Because a lot of the teams right now that have advanced to the quarters in the World Cup and who have done the best in this World Cup are teams where the players are fresh. We didn't think this would happen in a fall World Cup, which is just jammed into the club season. We think these players would be tired. But... These players are in prime form, and you really look at England, because only one of England's players is not in the Premier League, and that's Jude Bellingham, who England fans love. He's done really well in this World Cup, who plays for Dortmund in Germany. They are all in their top form right now, and a lot of the players, there's, there's other players outside of the U.S. Men's National Team for other countries who play in MLS, which stopped about a month or so before the World Cup depending on where you finish in the playoffs. But they are, you know, not in form. They're trying to pick up the pace because their season just ended. So you want guys who play at a really high level for their club so they get the experience. So when they play England and you say, oh, Phil Foden, I've played him. Oh, Jordan Pickford, I've played him. Oh, Harry Maguire, I've played him. I'm not scared of these guys. You think Pulisic is scared of Harry Maguire? Sorry, not sorry. I mean, I tend to think not. So it's not just about how the team builds a culture 
and connects with each other for your national team, but also how they play for their club or where they play or how much they play. That affects it too. But also, it's really about how you play with each other because Belgium, the talent Belgium has, typically that gets you out of the group. Minimum, it would get you out of the group. But because they don't like each other very much, Kevin De Bruyne apparently is causing all these turmoil issues. Fights, apparently, is what we've heard. But because of that, they didn't get out of the group. So you have to like each other. You have to play with each other a lot. And at the highest level, too. You know, England, Germany, Spain, all these European teams play in UEFA. They play in the Euros every four years. They played in 2020. They play these top-level European teams in the UEFA Nations League so, and in World Cup qualifying. So while we're out here in the CONCACAF Nations League playing Granada and Honduras, England is playing Germany and Hungary and all these, you know, big powers. And we're out here playing Haiti. So like, that's why it's important for the U.S. not just to play together, but play at the highest competition because under Greg Berhalter, which we'll get to in a second Greg Berhalter status, the U.S. did really well at home, on home soil, but the games they've played outside of the U.S., in England, in other countries, haven't gone so great, because they've played top-level competition. Which is why, if you know where I'm going at this, 2024, there have been a lot of rumors about Copa America. Copa America is basically the Euros, but for South America. Conmebol is the soccer governing body of South America. There's only 10 teams in Conmebol in South America. CONCACAF, you know, all those little islands, they're all one country, technically. They have their own soccer team. So there's a lot more countries in CONCACAF. But typically, in Copa America, which is, you know, very a very prestigious and big soccer tournament, if you don't remember, I don't remember this, but in 2016... It was Copa America Centenario. It was the 100th anniversary of Copa America. And for that, the U.S. played, and it was actually played in the United States in 2016. And instead of 12 teams, because usually they have 10 teams, obviously, from Comebol, and Comebol invites two other nations to play, it was 16. The U.S. finished fourth in 2016. That was obviously six years ago, and our team has totally changed since then. But that was a special case, and that was pretty big. I don't remember that. I was, that was, I was not into soccer at that time, but now I am. That was special, though, because it was a agreement between Comebol and CONCACAF, which allowed other teams in CONCACAF to play, like the U.S., Mexico, Costa Rica, Jamaica, Haiti, and Panama. So those six teams from North America played in Copa America. Now, 2024, the rumor is that Comebol is talking to Canada and the U.S. about inviting them into Copa America for 2024. Seriously? Which would be absolutely massive because if you play in Copa America, you're playing teams like Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador. Uruguay. These are big-name teams. You can seriously get some experience playing these teams in Copa America. 
And it can also, if you do well, boost your stature worldwide and in South America. And it would, if we do well, they'd be more likely to invite us because Copa America Centenario in 2016 made Comebol a lot of money hosting in the U.S. And in 2024, apparently it was Ecuador's turn to host Copa America. However, they have declined to host the tournament. As of this month, they declined. So now they're like looking for a host for summer 2024. And the rumor is that the U.S. could not just play in it, they could host it. And obviously, if you're Brazil, if you're Argentina, if you're Uruguay, why would you not want that? Why would you not want to come to the U.S. in 2024, two years before the World Cup is being played, to get experience against the host nation in the host country? Let's do it. So it's not certain that that happens, but there's been a lot of reports, rumors swirling around about that. And if it does happen, It'll be pretty cool in 2024. But obviously for the U.S., you've got the next games coming up for the U.S., I believe, are the Nations League, which you're playing minnow teams until you get to the final, which I believe is in June. You know, you play Canada, Mexico, the big teams. Canada is probably going to keep John Herman, and they're probably going to rebuild for 2026. Not really rebuild, but just look back on what happened where you get zero points in the World Cup of 2022 and fix that. And then Mexico, actually, are going to be the ones who are actually rebuilding because Tata Martino is no longer their manager. They have to find a new manager. So that's coming up in June, and there's qualification games for Nations League before that. Then this summer, you're going to have the Gold Cup, which is, you know, CONCACAF again. Oh, and I believe Qatar again, so yay for that. And then you'll have that again in 2025. So those are really the three big competitions you're going to play in for CONCACAF. There's going to be other Nations Leagues, I believe, before that, probably 2025 as well. Copa America, if you play that, that's obviously huge. And hopefully, because you're not going to have World Cup qualification games because you automatically qualify for the World Cups, so you don't have to go through qualification games. Because you host, you automatically qualify. So hope, I don't know what's going to happen there. Hopefully we could play some big gate teams and friendlies. But they're going to be playing in their qualification games, so I don't know how that's going to go. But we'll see on all that. But basically, the point I just wanted to make over these last 40 minutes where I talked for way too long, I did not mean to talk this long about that, is that you should not be disappointed about the United States men's national team. You should be excited and proud and patient because this is a young group who are really impressing, you know, on the world's biggest stage for this sport. I would say, you know, we expected them to get out of the group, but I would still say that's a success. And you, of course, you draw Netherlands, which isn't the best draw in the round of 16. But I was pretty happy about that. And I'm excited for what's going to come. 2024, if they can play a Copa America, that will be awesome. We will see how this team is then against the likes of Uruguay and Argentina and Brazil. And then 2026. And then we'll see all these players who start up club play again at the end of the month. At the end of December, they're going to start again with their clubs. And then 2026, World Cup will be here. But we'll, of course, have time to talk about all that, including whether Greg Berhalter is going to be the manager in 2026. The U.S., his contract is up at the end of the World Cup when the final game is played, not after the U.S. drops out. So we'll see if U.S. soccer extends him or if they try and go after someone else, whether it's another MLS coach, whether it's a big name in Europe 
or international who actually knows how to coach a international team because he's done it before. I don't know how that's going to go. And honestly, even if they keep Greg Berhalter, I don't think I'd be that mad because six or at least the majority of the teams that made it to the quarterfinals are in their second go-round with their manager. He coached in 2018, now in 2022. How about that? So maybe that's a bonus. And the players seem to like Greg Berhalter. So maybe that's another bonus. But we'll see how all that shapes out. We'll see what happens for the United States men's national team, not just in the next few weeks and months, but the next few years. Because if you take anything away from this, be excited, be proud, because the U.S. are coming in 2026 and beyond in the sport of soccer. And I am pumped for it. But that is not all we are talking about with soccer on this podcast, this World Cup, because the quarterfinals of the World Cup are just about to get underway on Friday. Wednesday and Thursday, there's no matches of the World Cup, which is like kind of weird because there hasn't been a day without World Cup since before the opening match, which was kind of strange. But the matches we've got in the quarterfinal on Friday, 10 a.m., Croatia and Brazil. Croatia had to beat Japan on penalties on Monday. And by the way, I this stat blew my mind. The last time that Croatia won a knockout round match in regular time was 1998. And they made the final in 2018. That's absolutely insane. It's all true! But Croatia plays Brazil. Brazil beat South Korea 4-1. That was kind of dominant, so I'm thinking Brazil's going to win that one. And then Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern, it's Netherlands and Argentina. I like that game because I really like Netherlands and Argentina, but they have the Argentinian Aronson. Messi! And it's his final World Cup, but they barely got out of the group stage. So I'm taking Netherlands. I like Netherlands in that game. They are well-rounded, as we saw. Argentina's, they'll probably do better on offense than the U.S. did against Netherlands. But even if the Netherlands have to sit back and then counter, they've shown they can do that. And Argentina have shown they've struggled a little bit. Remember they lost to Saudi Arabia. So I've got Netherlands actually in that game. That should be really good, though. On Friday. And then the other two quarterfinal matches Morocco play Portugal. Morocco beats Spain on Tuesday in penalties. Wow, that was really something. The only nation not from South America or Europe that is still in this thing. So if you're rooting for the underdog, root for Morocco. But they are playing Portugal. <laughs> Portugal, who just beat Switzerland by, you know, six to one. And Cristiano Ronaldo was starting on the bench. You know, no big deal. I just think I will take Portugal in that game. And then the last one, this might be, this is going to get everyone riled up. England and France. Oh, oh, oh. Oh my gosh. England's been playing really well, except for the US game. France has been playing really well, even though they lost to Tunisia. They didn't really care about that game. They'd already won the group anyway. Don't, you know, whatever. But Kylian Mbappe missed a training session, apparently. So we'll see what happens with him. But obviously, France have 
other players who could carry the load. I mean, they are the defending champions of this World Cup. Finally broke the curse to get out of the group. But England, they looked pretty dominant in their win over Senegal. It just takes a little bit for them to get started. In the 30th minute, Jordan Henderson scores, and then Harry Kane in the Bikai Osaka. And then just like that, you're up 3-0 over Senegal, and it doesn't really take that much time. It takes 20 minutes. And then France kind of dominated over Poland, 3-1. The only goal for Poland was a Lewandowski penalty in the 90th minute, which they actually had to redo. That was a little weird. But in that match, I will take France. I think France will beat England to advance to the semifinals. They are trying to repeat. They would be the first team to repeat in a World Cup if they could do it since Brazil in 1958-1962. And the other team to do that was Italy in 1934 and 1938. Not the best version of Italy back then. It's true! But you know what? They won the World Cup twice in a row. The only other team to do that was Brazil, and France is hoping to join that exclusive club. But we'll see. But the game starts for the quarterfinals. Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern, and of course you can watch all the World Cup games in English on Fox and Telemundo in Spanish, if you're watching in the United States. Even though the U.S. men are not out, I'm still watching the World Cup. It is still enthralling, very exciting. So, that's basically my World Cup update and my U.S. men's national team update for this week, and you're probably tired that I've been talking about the World Cup this whole time, even though once in a four-year event in the sport that is basically, I would say it's my favorite sport right now in soccer. Like, I am all into this thing, but don't worry, y'all. There's only one more week left where we are talking about the World Cup, because the final is coming up in a week and a half, and we will have the preview for the final next week on this podcast. By the way, the semifinal games next week are on Tuesday and Wednesday. So we actually can't have the podcast come out on Wednesday next week. It's going to have to come out later. I believe we're going to do it Thursday. Morning, morning. So next week, just to let you all know, but I will say this again, the podcast is coming out not on Wednesday next week, but on Thursday. So we can accurately provide you with a fact-filled analysis of the World Cup final, which is coming up next week. Oh my gosh, the World Cup's done. Some of you, hallelujah. But for me, it's a little sad, even though we're going to have club soccer right after that. We're probably going to talk about that, too, because I'm really into that right now. Sanders facts. This is officially a soccer podcast, even though we are transitioning from soccer to politics right now. To wrap up the podcast, this isn't going to be long. I just wanted to talk about the Georgia Senate runoff election, because that is being held the day I'm recording this podcast. Tonight, Tuesday, December 6th, they are counting ballots as we speak. And I am turning my head to my left, where I've got CNN on right now. And there's John King yamming about something at the magic wall. And they have not called the race. I'm watching it right now. 89% of the vote is in. Raphael Warnock, the Democrat incumbent, is up by 0.4%. He's got 50.2% of the vote over the Republican challenger, Heisman Trophy winner, and Texas resident, apparently, Herschel. Walker. What a guy, Herschel. Ya boy! I mean, how about that? But this is getting a lot of attention, you know, and you might be surprised about that because Xander, Democrats already have 50 seats in the Senate. Like, this won't change anything. Well, 
it'll change something. They'll get 51 seats in the Senate. They only had 50 last time, and when you have 50, you, uh, <laughs> you really need your band of brothers to stick together. And by that, I'm talking about, you know, Kristen Cinema, Joe Manchin. And you also, at that point, you really hope that nothing happens to any of those 50 senators, because if something does happen and they can't serve, well, then now you're down to 49, then 50, and until that seat can get filled, and if it's, you know, Joe Manchin drops dead suddenly, let's hope that doesn't happen, but if he did, you know, then you lose that seat to a Republican in West Virginia, and then Mitch McConnell has the majority in the Senate. So that's why it's pretty big for, you know, Democrats to hold this Georgia seat. They want to get to 51. They want to keep Raphael Warnock on the Senate. They don't want frickin' Herschel Walker. Like, good grief. What a terrible candidate, Herschel Walker. And he's basically Trump's candidate. Trump is the one who was like, run, 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 please. And there's a lot of, you know, Republicans in Georgia Including the lieutenant governor who, like, I ain't voting for this guy. He's freaking, like, crazy. Or he doesn't know what he's talking about because he has CTE. What? And so there's that. There's also the fact that I mentioned this on my election night thingy that I did, but Democrats want 51 seats because you look at the Senate map in 2024, and it is brutal for Democrats. They have to hold seats in Montana, Ohio, and West Virginia. Now, all three of those have strong Democratic incumbents who have won before in these red states, and they could do it again in 2024. They're all strong candidates if they run again. John Tester in Montana, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, and then Joe Manchin, of course, in West Virginia. You also have to keep Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and then the only pickup opportunities you have, really the best ones, are. Florida, and Texas. So, you know, I wouldn't be too confident about that. So the Democrats need every seat they can, because 2024, that map is not good for them. You know, and then even if you lose one seat in 2024, and Republicans, you know, win the White House, well, then you've got a Republican vice president, and so, you know, then you have a Republican majority in the Senate with only 50 votes. So you don't want that either. So then all that stuff happens. So. This election really just, it's not just ramifications for now and for Georgia and Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. It's a, you know, part of a larger picture for Democrats in the Senate. And by the way, I'm looking at this right now. I'm looking at CNN. It's 91% in. Warnock's up 50.1% to 49.9%. But I'm looking at Twitter. By the way, y'all, I'm still on Twitter until there's a viable alternative to Twitter. I'm going to stay on it, even though Elon is like, crazy this is true but dave wasserman at redistrict who is he's part of the cook political report this man knows what he's talking about he does his i've seen enough when he gets to predict the winners on election night when he sees the numbers come in he's predicted that Raphael warnock's gonna win and he says that it looks like it's gonna be a two to four point margin so it looks like democrats are gonna keep that seat the polls were showing that warnock was going to win by about three points And that two to four point range is probably, you know, that's in there. And it looks like it's so close right now. Of course, this is going to be outdated by the time you listen to this podcast because more votes are going to come in. But the votes that are outstanding are basically in the Atlanta metro area, which a lot of them are going to go for Raphael Warnock, the Democrat. So it looks like, and by the time you listen to this, it's probably going to be official or, you know, projected by all the news networks that Raphael Warnock won 
So that'd be 51 for Democrats. Now, of course, you have the House of Representatives, so you can't get really major legislation passed because that's going to be controlled by Republicans. Now, it's a slim majority, 213 to 222, which is actually the flip of what happened last time. In 2020, Democrats had 222 seats, Republicans had 213. That's what the case was before the election. Now it's flipped. Republicans have 222, Democrats have 213. Gash facts. So it would appear that Kevin McCarthy's going to be Speaker. And all this stuff about, you know, Republicans could defect, they could vote for someone else. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it, but I think that they're probably going to fall in line. But that means that a lot of the stuff Democrats want to do in Congress isn't going to happen, and the Republicans can, you know, investigate Hunter Biden, which is very good because we all need to know what's going on with that laptop. Very suspicious. This is big stuff. National security. This should be our top priority. That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about right now gas prices or inflation or all the stuff, you know, that they were campaigning on before. They're talking about Hunter Biden. Oh, could we impeach Joe Biden? Now, if they actually tried to do that and they didn't have the votes, which they, eh, 222, they still need a majority, so they could only lose four or five votes if that happened. And that didn't happen, that'd be a little bit embarrassing. But all that stuff, you know, Republicans control the House, Democrats control the Senate. But if they keep the Senate, which they are, then they can keep confirming justices and judges, which they want to still do, which is very important with the judicial system, because that's an entire branch of the federal government. You got the executive, legislative, judicial. Cool facts, bro. So, I mean, there you go. We'll talk about this more extensively later, you know, in January, when you actually get to see what Republicans are doing with their House majority and what Democrats are doing in the Senate and the White House and all that stuff. So we'll talk about all that more in depth later. But for the Georgia runoff, which is happening tonight, basically election season 2022 coming to a close tonight, it looks like Democrats are going to win that final race to get 51 seats in the Senate and expand their majority in the midterms, where they performed better than expected, even though they didn't keep the House, they still did better than expected and kept the Senate. So how about that. That is basically all I've got for all my topics this week, for all my facts on this week's edition of the Zaders Facts Podcast. So thank you all for listening. And remember that if you liked all the facts that are on this week's edition of the podcast, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 85, rate and review the podcast, then go on all your socials, Twitter, yes, Facebook, yeah, Instagram, I'm always on Instagram. TikTok, I love TikTok. Xander's Facts, that's Xander with a Z, I'm on there. And then, most importantly, remember to tell all your friends, spread facts! Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about Xander's Weekend Facts. It's got some good stuff, y'all. Check it out every Sunday morning. Xander's Facts is on YouTube. This episode is going to be on YouTube. Check that out. Xander's Facts link tree has all the links that you need. And xandersfacts.com. With the Xander's Facts Shop. Go get your facts swag at xandersfacts.com. So there you have it. That is basically episode 85 of the podcast. Next week is episode 86. And as I said earlier, we will be talking about the World Cup for the final time. We will preview the World Cup final. We will talk about everything that has happened before in this World Cup. A little bit of a review 
and a preview of the World Cup. So how about that? And by the way, when I was scrolling through Twitter, when I was talking about Dave Wasserman and all that stuff, so a lot of the U.S. men's national team players have come back home to America or England or wherever they go. So I saw a tweet from the Miami Heat, Weston McKinney sitting courtside at a Heat game, which I don't know why he didn't invite me, but I just wanted to let you all know that because America, 2026, get ready. This is meant to hype you up, y'all, because we coming. So there you go. So there you have it. That is it. That is a wrap on episode 85 of the Zaders Facts Podcast. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see y'all with episode 86 next week. Z-A-N-D-E-R-S-F-A-C-T-S dot com.